We're working through this letter of 1 Peter, we've called the series Compelled. I'm going to see in a few minutes why it is particularly relevant to this uh, little section. Uh, But if you were here last week, one of the things that we mentioned is that at least one of the verses that we read last week is perhaps one of the most complicated, complex, difficult, and um, uh, debated verses uh, in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, We covered that one. We made some suggestions of how that might be interpreted. Uh, If you want to download and understand a little bit of that, that's great. Uh, There's another verse in this section this afternoon, which is probably equally as difficult. We covered one last week. We're not going to cover it this week. So there's another verse that I'm actually, I'm not ducking out, not by any means. I think actually, um, in terms of priority, and that's the significant thing, in terms of priority, there are moments when we come to the Bible when it is worthwhile saying, do you know what, I'm not really sure about that verse. Uh, So I'd need to spend a lot of time on it. Um, We haven't got time in a gathering like this to spend all the time on it. But you know what? There's these five verses which are packed with really helpful stuff. So in your own private study, I'd encourage you, maybe do some reading. uh, If you want to email me, by all means, I can send you a little uh, idea of some thoughts on how to interpret verse 6. But we're going to spend our time in verse 1 to 5. Um, We're going to consider, and I think that this is a really key issue for the world that we're living in today, we're going to consider the idea of moral relativism. That sounds grand, doesn't it? What it basically means is we, we can all have different ideas, different thoughts, of what is moral, what is the right way to live. Uh, And those different ideas of what is the right way to live can be cultural, they can change over time, they can be geographical. So you would now, today, travel to different parts of the world and what we might be so absolutely confident and assured on as what is a correct moral framework on which to live, we might be absolutely sure that's the way we should live. We might travel to a different part of the world and we might realize that there is another moral framework which is the predominant view and we might, we might be shocked because we will find that it is likely to significantly conflict with what we consider to be an appropriate way to live. And the question is, I I guess, is is how do we deal with that? How do we respond to that? What has the Bible got to say that will help us to navigate this very, very complicated area? I'll put it another way. How, therefore, should we live? And why should we live that way? It's really easy for us to assume the way that we live It's because it's shaped by the Bible. And actually what we might not realize is a lot more of it might be shaped by just cultural, traditional ideas as opposed to God's Word. I'll give you an example of really how timeless this moral relative idea is. Herodotus, who wrote in 440 BC, he wrote this about uh, Darius, king of Persia. 
Um, he was pondering this, this dilemma. Uh, and he called some Greeks into his courtroom, throne room, and he asked them what it would take, what they would need to be given, paid, I guess, what would it take for them to eat the dead bodies of their fathers? That's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's a long time ago, but what would it take to eat the dead bodies of their fathers? They were absolutely shocked. Nothing. You couldn't give us anything in the world that would give us a freedom that would buy us to do that. Interesting, he thought. A little bit later, in the presence of those same Greeks, he asked some Indians, uh, a, a, a tribal group called uh, the Catalias, who were present in the court, who were cannibals, and whose tradition it was uh, correct for them to eat the dead bodies of their ancestors. He asked them, what would it take, how much would I have to pay you for you to burn the bodies of your ancestors? They were absolutely horrified. Burn the bodies? That is an outrage. That was a terrible thing to do. How can you even utter such awful things? Herodotus writes, they uttered a cry of horror and forbade him to mention such a dreadful thing. Wow. That's a pretty out there demonstration of conflicting moral frameworks. They are both horrified at the idea of that which the other group should do. Until we realize, until we come to terms with the idea that there is a relative moral framework operating in this world, operating, let me be really clear, operating in this world, we will fail. Until we realize that, we will fail to come to terms with how dramatic and how magnificently compelling the message of the Bible is. Here's a group of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and their moral framework, in other words, the, the way in which they are called to live, has been shifted. And they are compelled now, compelled to live differently. We don't see it so much in our culture. We are not as affected by it. Or let me put it another way. People my age and older are not quite as affected by this. Because we are generally those who have been brought up in a culture which has persisted to be shaped to some extent by the moral framework of the Bible. 
but we are increasingly moving into a world where the moral framework that we exist in is no longer shaped by the moral framework of the Bible. So I want to say two things as we step into this world. Firstly, I guess to people who might have been brought up, maybe my generation and older, or those who have been brought up in a context which has just assumed a Christian perspective, we must not fall into the trap of assuming that the Christian message is the moral perspective and everybody else doesn't have morals. We need to understand. We need to come to terms with. We might be standing in a place where we have a particular moral framework, but there are others who are not immoral. They hold a different moral framework. That's the first thing I want to say. And we'll see how this text influences that. For those who are perhaps my generation and younger and might not have been so affected by the persistent um, Bible-shaped moral framework, let me say this. Coming to the Bible, coming to the message of Jesus, we need to understand this, that we are going to be confronted with a new moral framework which is going to make demands on us. It is going to cause us to be confronted, to think, and to be changed. (laughs) Why is also a question that we need to ask of this text. Those two perspectives means, I think I can rest on pretty safe ground, that if you're in my generation or older, then that's definitely at least a proportion of our gathering this afternoon. If you're my generation or younger, that's the rest of us. So this text has got something to say to all of us, no matter where we're coming from. We're going to see that the moral framework of the, of the Bible, uh, the moral commitment, firstly, it is pioneered. The moral commitment of the Bible is pioneered. Secondly, the moral commitment is a life and death important issue for us. Thirdly, the Christian moral commitment is relative. And fourthly, the Christian moral commitment is universal. Those two things, those two final points, conflict with each other. They deliberately conflict with each other, and we're going to see why. So the first one, moral commitment, is pioneered. Let's have a look at the text. We see in uh, our reading, therefore, verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. There's our starting point. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Jesus Christ is the pioneer. He is the pioneer for you and me. He is the one who has gone before. He is the one who has shaped. He is the one who has directed. He is the one who has created a framework by which we are to live. That is a great encouragement for us. Let's think about that for a minute. Why is that important? Um, There are two films I might bring to your attention. Some of you will have seen them. Uh, Well, it's a film and TV series, actually. Um, 
Caesar, Caesar's wars as expressed in that great movie, Gladiator, Germania, Marcus Aurelius. The battle is about to just explode onto the screen in probably one of the best bits of cinematography ever produced, in my opinion, but I'm not a film critic. It explodes, literally. Where is Marcus Aurelius as the battle explodes? Right at the back, sat on his horse, watching into the valley the battle unfolding. Think about that. Just so far removed from that, the final episode of Blackadder Goes Forth. You probably remember it. If you've seen it, you will remember the incredibly poignant final scene. They're stood in the trenches. They're about to enter into the battle, over the top, into no man's land, attacking the enemy trenches on the other side. What do they both have in common? They both have this in common. The elite stand at the back. The leaders stand at the back. And the minions are sent into battle. The leader is safe and the minions take the pain. Let me make it really clear from day one as we enter into this text Jesus is the pioneering opposite of that leadership model. He is the one who is not stood at the back. We do not have a God who is shouting from heaven saying, come on, try a bit harder, you'll do okay. Rather, we have a pioneering God as we read, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, He is the one who is not behind, sat on a horse. He is not the one who is sat behind in the war office back in London, sending the message to the trenches on the front, go over the top, you're about to go into battle. Jesus is the one who has led the conflict. He is the one who has gone before. He is the one, if you like, in those heroical portrayals of ancient stories where the the commander is at the very front of the battle, entering into the battle. The second thing, however, we see and we have to think about is this. And I guess the final words of Blackadder goes forth, are poignant and um, instructive to us. What is the final word? What are the fi- what is the final words? What are the final words? Good luck, everyone. As they go over the top, they are entering into a question mark. Is the Jesus who we worship, the one who goes into that conflict, one who goes over the top? Good luck, everyone. Absolutely not. The Jesus who enters, firstly, 
pioneering into that conflict is the one who, as we read verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the Jesus who we worship. There's the Jesus who enters into the conflict. Not good luck everyone, but with an absolute assurance, I am leading into victory. I am leading into triumph. I am leading into success. Therefore, when you and I are faced with a compelling shift in demand, we are not, we are not being shouted on from behind. We are being prototyped by one at the front who was pioneering, in a pioneering way, has achieved, who was victorious, who entered into that, this fight already knowing who the winner was. That's the Jesus who we see described here. Our moral commitment is pioneered. Secondly, our moral commitment is life and death important. It is life and death important. Look at what it goes on to say. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. We are not facing that verse in all of its powerful meaning as we sit here in the 21st century in Yorkshire. But there are places in the world right now, and we have seen it splashed onto the screens, 21 Coptic Christians taken, beheaded. Why? Because they believed in the risen Jesus, because they are faced with this question. Are you going to free yourself now or are you going to allow yourself to be given over in this sense to the point where the suffering in the body is to its absolute? The suffering in the body. If we suffer in the body, we are done with sin. It's life and death. You know, we can read this in two ways. In fact, we have a temptation to read this in a particular way, in our kind of um, very kind of um, plural uh, Western spiritual kind of context. We might read this to say, it's, it's a bit like this. It's a bit like a kind of spiritual detachment from the body, where we become... Um, no longer concerned about earthly things, if you like, a, a state of nirvana or a state of kind of disconnected uh, satisfaction and transcendental joy, uh, a, a kind of perspective which is outside of now. Uh, I'll read, read, read you this from, it's an American Buddhist website, it says this, 
Enlightenment is not a mystical or transcendental state, rather it is a condition in which one enjoys the highest wisdom, vitality, good fortune, confidence and other positive qualities and in which one finds fulfillment in one's daily activities and comes to understand one's purpose in being alive. The idea that we might reach a kind of spiritual transcendent state where we step outside of the possibility of real bodily harm because we've reached a higher place. Is that what Peter is suggesting here? He's writing to people who are about to live that, lose their lives, potentially. And it has nothing to do with some sort of transcendental spiritual state. It is rooted, it is rooted in the absolute belief that if I die, I will physically live again. I will be resurrected and I will live again. It's not a denial of the body. It's a belief that the body will be resurrected because Jesus is resurrected. That's one of the arguments that we've already seen in this letter. In other words, the, the physical reality of oppression right now, I can live with that not because I've reached a higher spiritual state, but because I believe really and truly and absolutely that if I let go of this temporary physical experience, if I do away with all of those selfish desires to preserve me and trust in that Jesus who is resurrected already, then I will live forever. That's, that is dramatic, isn't it? I mean, that is life and death. And it is compelling. And therefore, it says to you and me today, in a complex moral world, how important is it? Peter says, it is life and death important. It's a matter of saying, actually, I, I will let go of everything because it might even cost me my life but I am, going to be, I am compelled to hold on to what I now believe. Look at how the, we shift now from that moral commitment which is, life, which is life and death important to the idea that the moral commitment which he is going to present to us is relative. Now bear with me, those of you thinking, what, what's he saying about this moral relative idea? And you're thinking we're undermining truths in the Bible. Just stick with it, because we'll see why it is relative. One of the ideas that Ecclesiastes brings to us is that there are, there are two views. There is the view that we see described in Ecclesiastes as under the sun. There are things that we see which are going on now, but there is the, the divine perspective there is a perspective which sits outside of under the sun and there might be all sorts of different ideas. As there are all sorts of different moralities in this world today, look at what we see now in verse 2. As a result, as a result of what? Who are we talking about here? We're talking about those who are willing to forego their lives so that sin might not play a part in their lives. 
those, they, as a result, they, those who are committed to that, do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather the will of God. There's a demand that is being made on us. As soon as we see that, we're seeing that what is being introduced is the desires of my life, the desires of my attitude, the desires of my heart are not in step, that my moral framework is not in step with the God who made me. But now, having been compelled by his message, I no longer live according to that set of desires. I now live according to a new set of desires. I now live rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So the first thing that we see is that we are called to a different moral framework. I I think in a sense what Peter is doing is he is portraying normal life. Normal life in in, uh, Asia at that time. In the place where these individuals were first hearing this letter, he is describing normal life, but he is describing it with words which are are shocking. Words which jump out from the page. And and the words that jump out from the page are words like uh, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. It's like, What kind of place do they live in? What kind of world do they live in where that was just normal life? Let me say it was probably just like our world. Probably no different, actually. In fact, most people who were living their lives day by day would not consider that they were living a life which was filled with debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's just normal life. It's just normal life. In fact, we get a clear indication of why that is the case. Because Peter goes on to say that they are surprised that you do not live like this. They're surprised. In other words, they have created in their minds a moral framework, in other words, a a way of living which is shaped by what is an acceptable way of living. And the fact that these Christians, these new crazy Christians, are not living according to that framework is a surprise. Now, let's try and relate that so that we can get a handle on it. I think that there are practices in our culture today which are a surprise to our culture. Patterns of extreme behavior, patterns of extreme living, patterns of what we culturally would describe as morally just shocking 
there are patterns of living which are like that today in the world that we live. And all of society says, that is just shocking. We're not surprised, in other words, we're not surprised when anybody, or we are surprised, sorry, we are surprised when anybody lives like that. It's not, it's not because you're a Christian that you don't live like that. It's because it's a surprise when anybody goes to those extremes. Do you see, do you see what, he's say, what we're saying? There is a way which is morally extreme within the society. But that's not what Peter is talking about. He's not talking about moral extremes for the culture of their day. He's talking about normal life. And it's surprising when these Christians don't live that normal life. It's a surprise. Shocking, actually. In fact, more than that, it's concerning. Because some of the practices were absolutely essential for the towns to do well. There were festive days. It's great, isn't it, a festive day? That's just a great day. Day off work, bank holiday in ancient times. Get a bank holiday, we just have a crazy festive day. It's just a great time. It's more important than just a great time, actually. It was a time of excess. It was a time when the wine flowed to the god of Bacchus. God of wine and revelry. And it wasn't just a kind of day to have a great time. Actually, it was a day when we were called to make sure that we're giving worship to the gods in the lives that we live. Now, I guess that probably, probably most people never even thought about that. They probably just thought, here's a day off, let's go wild. Let's just have our normal great bank holiday, Bacchus day. Just have a great time. But contained within that was what Peter describes as detestable drunkenness, detestable carousing, detestable lust, detestable debauchery, detestable orgies. He's using language which is extreme for normal practice. So let's not get ourselves in the kind of mindset where we don't go anywhere near that kind of extreme stuff because none of society goes near that extreme stuff. Actually, Peter is calling out Christians of the day and he's saying, look guys, you need to be clear. You need to be straightforward in your thinking that you are called to live differently, even to the normality of the day. Now that's great, isn't it? When we hear about it back there. It's great because it feels detached, it feels separated, it feels as though it doesn't have to jump out and bite us. But it does, doesn't it? Because what we are called to do is we are called to take God's Word and we are called to see how, where was it there, what did it mean there, and therefore what does it mean today? And the, real, the reality is, here's, here's an example, here's a clear example which I would say is absolutely relevant. We would be shocked. Peter would be shocked. And he would be writing to us today and he would be saying, do you know what? You do not go near Fifty Shades of Grey. That's, wow. Okay, that's straight up. Culturally relevant. 
He's saying, hang on a sec, here we have expressed here clearly, visibly, a pattern of life which is describing extreme lust, detestable orgies, a pattern of life which is not how we should be living today. And therefore, he's making it really clear and he's saying, guys, 21st century, let's switch on to this and say, yes, there is a moral relativism. People will be surprised when we do not engage in certain normal patterns of life. There is a way to live in the world that we now live in today which might make us look a bit weird might look, make us look a bit strange. That's what Peter is saying. They're surprised when you don't do it. In fact, they heap all insults on you when you don't do it. But there is a pattern of life which when we start to take the framework of the Bible and we're saying, how therefore should I live today? We live differently. And our pioneer has already gone before us who's lived that way. He's already been killed. Because he's lived differently. He's made different claims. There is the potential that there will be abuse because we, we decide. Now, what, what is Peter saying? I, I also think he's saying just, just get on and live differently. I don't think he's... There is no instruction here which says, guys, listen, next month there's that Bacchus festival. I think what you need to do is get those great big papyrus sheets out get your ink out and make some big placards, nail it to some sticks and stand out the festiv- outside the festival halls and wave them so that everybody sees that we don't join in the Bacchus feasts because we're, we're kind of uh, in a militant way just kind of standing opposed to this horrific Bacchus worship. He's not saying that. He's saying just get on and live differently. Let your lives be a a morally relative different life. Wow. I I guess in terms of this particular book, this particular message at this point in time, I would suggest that this this is probably for me, I'll be honest with you, this is the most uncomfortable message I think that this book has brought to us yet. Because it's touching on real life, day to day. It's touching on stuff that we, we, are not thinking wisely about. We are not being, or we are not critiquing our culture wisely today. And the word of the message of the Bible is saying, guys, because Jesus has already died, and risen, because that assurance is there, you need to be really thinking how you live now. Because there will be a moral relativism. I'll I'll conclude this little section with this. When I I was very young, when I was young, there were certain patterns of moral behavior that the whole of society just assumed was the way to be. It was just the way to be. And there were times when that moral behavior, which was deemed society acceptable, was used in a really, really detestable, horrible, awful, shameful way. 
I, I remember now thinking back with horror at the way uh, one of my uh, class colleagues was treated because he was from a single parent family. That is, that is absolutely shameful as we look back on our culture. It's just horrible. And, and yet now we have moved to a point which is so far removed from that where the idea of a, of a younger couple who are saying, do you know what, we're going we're to get married first before we live together because that's what we see God is calling us to do. That is considered morally reprehensible by our society. It's just delinquent. How do you know that that's the right person? How do you know that that's right? Now, now, hear me clearly. I am not saying that we all live up to the standards of God's demands, not by a million miles. But unless we start to think through some of this stuff, we're not kind of getting to grips with what the Bible is calling us to do. Morally relative, yes. In other words, we're called to live slightly differently in some cases and massively differently in other cases. However, our moral commitment is also universal. And I close with this. Are we saying that because it's relative it doesn't really matter? Absolutely not. Because the text goes on to say, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The core of the message of the Bible, the core of the good news of the Bible, the core of the gospel, is that people who have been living morally relative lives in a life which is different to the relative morality which, or the, mor the morality which is portrayed in the Bible, those who have decided to live differently will come under the universal judgment of God. And, and straight away, as soon as we talk, start to talk about judgment, we, we start to feel really uncomfortable. Why should this morality of the Christian faith be, be more important than everybody else's morality? For one reason only. Because it is not a morality which is worked out by human minds. It is a morality which is revealed by God. That's why it stands alone. It's a morality which is revealed by God. It is God breaking into our world and saying, now live differently. Wow, that is mind-blowing. And therefore, the God who says there is a morally different way, which is universal, achieves two things. Firstly, he is a savior of those who have not lived that life. I need a savior because I've not lived according to the moral demands of the Bible. I've sinned again and again and again. And let me tell you this, I will continue to sin again and again and again. 
I will continue to live with a mindset which looks far more like debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. I will continue to live in so many ways more like that. And therefore, I need a Savior who has never lived like that. And here's the amazing thing. The God who introduces a moral authority, who makes that demand, is also the God who suffers the outcome for those who have failed that moral demand. Jesus Himself makes the moral demand and dies for those who haven't made that moral demand. He stands as the one who says, I know you cannot do it, but I have. Trust in me. Die with me. Be buried with me. Rise with me. Gain eternity with me. Because I am the one who introduces the moral demands which is demanding on every human being and enters into this world through me. But I'm the one who gains the victory. Verse 7 says this, the end of all things is near. It's a nice little turning point. It's a moment for us to just pause, look to next week and say, well, where do we go from here? But the demands that we see in this text I think have wide-ranging wide implications for us. And it is precisely the demands that tell us we need a Savior. 